0: So here's a situation that a lot of Christians find themselves in. They show up at church, they sing the songs, and they say the prayers. You know they do all the right things, but they feel spiritually dry. They feel unfulfilled. They feel like they, they don't feel like they're in tune with God. Right? Maybe they did at some point in the past, maybe when they were a new convert. Uh, and everything felt really vibrant, like God was with them, and they were ready for everything. But over time, that kind of just faded away. And now all the Christian stuff that they do, worship, prayer, communion, whatever, just kind of feels empty. And they're wondering what happened and how they can get back to where they were five, ten, maybe twenty years ago. And if you feel like that, don't don't worry, You're, you're not alone. I think that's actually a fairly common experience. So I've definitely been through times in my life where I have felt like that. And so what I want to talk with you about today is how to find spiritual fulfillment and spiritual abundance in your faith life. So my name is Alex. I'm the pastoral intern who is here for the summer. And this month, we're going to be doing a series on the miracles of Jesus. And the miracles of Jesus weren't just about helping people back in the day. They're not just stories that happened in the past, and they're stuck in the past. When Jesus heals somebody, when we read about that, it continues to be important today. The miracle stories continue to speak to us, teaching us things about Jesus and about ourselves. We can learn about who Jesus is and how we should respond by reading these stories. So this week we'll be looking at the story of Jesus turning water into wine, which has probably more depth than you ever realized. Before we get into that, let's pray. God, thank you for bringing us here together this morning to hear your word for us today. Open our hearts and our minds to receive it and to receive you. Lord, if there's anyone listening right now, either in person or online or after the fact, and they feel like they're far from you, like they're just going through the motions, I pray that you would draw close to them and bring them new life and energy in their faith. Thank you that you are a God who provides what we truly need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So before we dive into the story, I want to give you a crash course on the Gospel of John. So John's Gospel is a little different than the other three. It's structured around seven signs. And so these are seven miracles that proved that Jesus was the promised Savior, that he was who he said he was. Now, a miracle is a display of divine power. It's God using his power to do something in the world that would otherwise be impossible. But a sign is more than that. A sign points to something beyond itself. And that sounds complicated, but it's, it's not as complicated as it, you'd think. A sign tells us something more than the events that make up the literal story. And so in addition to being a miracle, a sign is a metaphor for a deeper truth. So actually, you can think about the purpose of signs in everyday life. If you're driving along and you see this road sign, you know that it means yield to oncoming traffic. And nothing in the literal design of the sign tells you that. Literally, it's just a red and white triangle. It doesn't have yield written on it or anything like that. But the sign communicates something beyond itself. When you see it, you know that you need to yield to oncoming traffic. So the signs in John are like that. They're displays of divine power, but beyond being displays of divine power, they also tell us something about Jesus that's more than the literal events of the story. When you interpret the details symbolically, a deeper truth emerges. So let's take a look at our story today. So on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother, knowingly, said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. So nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from about 20 to 30 gallons. So Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who drew the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and the disciples believed in him. So John starts this story by setting the scene. We're at a wedding. And at first it might seem weird that Jesus and specifically the disciples were invited to the wedding, given that in the story of the Gospel of John, Jesus only met the disciples a couple days ago. Right, So imagine hiring somebody new at work and then telling them, oh, by the way, my cousin is getting married next weekend. Do you want to come? That's really weird to us as 21st century Westerners. But in first century Judea, weddings were the biggest celebration of the year or whenever they happened. It was like Christmas is for us. It was multiple days of feasting and festivities. On top of that, you would invite pretty much everybody you could contact. Distant relatives, friends of friends. If a person had any kind of connection to you, they got invited to the wedding. So they were huge parties, they lasted several days, sometimes several weeks, and they drew in all kinds of people from all walks of life. So for that reason, the Bible often uses weddings to metaphorically talk about the age to come. God dwelling with his people at the end of history is envisioned like a wedding banquet. There's joy, there's abundance, and people are drawn in from all walks of life. So in the book of Revelation, which is written by John, the same John who wrote the gospel that we're reading from today, the end times are referred to as the wedding supper of the Lamb. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like a roar of rushing waters and loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding feast of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given for her to wear. And then John tells us that fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So if we understand this story of the wedding at Cana, symbolically, so as a symbol pointing beyond itself, so John is telling us that the wedding feast of the Lamb has begun. The new age is already here. So we have to think about the end times being far off in the future, right? Or maybe in the near future, if you're really into like predicting it, but it's not already here. That's not how we tend to think about the age to come. But what John is telling us is that actually we are living in the new age, and we have been for 2,000 years. The coming of Jesus was the start of the new age. But hold on, because Jesus says a few verses later that his hour hasn't come yet. So the new age actually isn't here yet? What's up with that? Well, in the Bible, there's this idea of the already and the not yet. The new age is already here, but not fully Certain aspects of the of the age are here now. But other aspects are still to come in the future, like eternal life, right? We still have to deal with death. And so in the Gospel of Mark, you'll find Jesus talking about how the kingdom is on its way. The language that gets used is drawing near, right? The kingdom is, is close at hand. But in Luke's Gospel, Jesus talks about how the kingdom is already here. He uses the language of in your midst. So the gospel writers are picking up on different parts of that already not yet dynamic. And so this story shows us both aspects. Things changed fundamentally when Jesus entered into the world, but the rest will change when he comes again. So what about the new age is already here? Like what, what do we already have? Well, that's actually what this passage is about, and it's what John is going to tell us about. And we'll get there, but it will take a little bit more explaining, so bear with me. So Jesus' mother comes to him with a problem. There is no more wine. Now, wine in the Bible is often used as a metaphor for God's blessing and abundance. So in the famous Psalm 23, for example, David writes, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows with wine. So David is using the image of a cup overflowing with wine to describe how abundantly God has blessed him. And these aren't material blessings necessarily. So in this Psalm, David is in the valley of the shadow of death in the presence of his enemies. This was written while he was on the run from King Saul. But even so, he's able to find spiritual fulfillment because of God's presence in his life. When the wine metaphor is used in the Bible, it's used to refer spiritual fulfillment and abundant joy. It's comfort in God's presence. Now, when there's no wine, like there is in this story, it means the opposite, a lack of fulfillment and a lack of God's presence. And if you know a little bit about biblical history, it's not that hard to see why. The last prophet that came before Jesus was 400 years before Jesus. God had been seemingly silent for 400 years. On top of that, the Jewish people had been conquered by a series of successive empires. God had promised them a kingdom and a king, but it just wasn't happening. The Jewish people are crying out to God, God, where are you? Where are the blessings that you have promised us? Why won't you fill our cups like you did with our ancestors? But there's another reason the Jewish people felt far from God. And John is about to explain that symbolically. So John tells us that the jars that Jesus used for this miracle were specifically jars used for ceremonial washing. And on top of that, there were six of them. So in the Bible, seven represents completeness or wholeness. All right. So if you think about the Genesis story, God created the world in seven days, which tells us that creation was whole and complete when he was done. Seven is a good number. But six, I don't know if you can believe this, but six is one less than seven. <laughs> Obviously, right? Because it's one less than seven... It's often used to mean or symbolize incompleteness or inadequacy. If something in the Bible numbers six, it's because it's not enough. So when we put that together with the fact that the jars were used for ceremonial washing, John is telling us that the Jewish law, their system of staying ritually and spiritually clean, was not enough. By itself, the Jewish law couldn't get you to God. By itself, it couldn't bring about spiritual abundance. Now, the problem wasn't really with the law itself. It was way, with the way the law was being used. Right? So God gave the Israelites the law way back at the beginning of the biblical story. So obviously, it was good. It, it's God-given. And he had to give it to them for some good reason. But the Jews of the first century had forgotten why the law existed The point of the law was to point people towards God and to help people live fulfilled lives. It was like a compass to help people find their way to God. But to the Jews of the first century, the law had become an end unto itself. They were keeping the law for the sake of keeping the law. And in fact, the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, had added human laws around God's laws in order to really guarantee that God's laws would not be broken. It wasn't enough to just set the Sabbath part a day for rest, whatever rest means to you. The Pharisees laid down what kinds of activities were allowed and how far you could walk before it counted as work, that kind of thing. So this is why in Matthew twenty-three twenty-three, Jesus tells the Pharisees, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mill, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. The letter of the law was being followed, but the spirit of the law had been forgotten. So that was the state of things in first century Judea. The law was being followed, but God wasn't in it. A lifeless law cannot bring about spiritual fulfillment. But Jesus is here to change that. So he has the servants fill the jars with water, and then they draw some out and serve it to the master of the banquet. And something that's easy to miss is the amount of wine that Jesus made. So John tells us that the jars held 20 to 30 gallons each. In metric, that's about 75 to 115 liters. So if you multiply that by 6, you get 450 to 690 liters of wine. So if you think about a 2-liter bottle of pop, like of Coke, that you could get at the corner store, you would have to fill 225 of those with what with the wine that Jesus made, at a minimum. If we go with the high-end 30-gallon estimate, that's 345 two-liter bottles of pop. So that's a lot of wine. That's a lot of wine. <laughs> and we think about wine as a metaphor for spiritual abundance. Jesus brings overflowing spiritual abundance. The wine that Jesus brings is the best wine, and there is nothing more satisfying. It's what truly fulfills. So this is what John is telling us about the new age that comes with Christ. The wine of the previous age had run dry, but now a new age comes with new wine, and the best has been saved for last, as the master of the banquet describes to the groom. The new age has come, and with it comes fulfillment and spiritual abundance like never before. So what does that mean for us today? Well, the good news is that the spiritual abundance is available for us today. Like I said, we are living in the new age. The new age started with Jesus. And so if you are looking for joy and fulfillment in your life, Jesus is offering you that. And better better yet, you don't have to do anything for it. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to make it happen yourself. All you need to do is draw close to Jesus, and it's available to you. On the flip side, though, there is no other way to get it. You can't bring it about in your own life through your own actions. And that was the problem of the Jews in Jesus' day. They're trying to bring about blessing and fulfillment by following the law, and that just doesn't work. Now, we as Christians today don't follow the Old Testament law. We don't follow the old Jewish laws of purity and sacrifice. Most of you are wearing mixed fabrics today. That's not allowed in the old Jewish system, right? But we as Christians have developed our own rituals. We have our own motions that we go through. We sing songs on Sundays. We pray before meals and before bed. We take communion sometimes, that kind of thing. And those things on their own Can't get you to God. Just going through the motions does not bring fulfillment. Now, to be clear, all the things we do as Christians are good. Don't be thinking that I'm not telling you to, I'm telling you not to pray or telling you not to worship. But you have to do them with the aim of drawing closer to Jesus. You can't just be going through the motions. Just showing up to church for the sake of showing up to church isn't going to do anything. When you pray, don't just say the same rote words. Have a conversation with Jesus. When you're here on Sunday morning, singing the worship songs, sing to Jesus. Think about the words that you're singing and mean them. The things we do are not an end unto themselves. They're a way to get closer to Jesus. And so you should be conscious of that when you do them. There have been times in my own life where, admittedly, I have fallen into the trap of just going through the motions. Times when I've been busy with school or stressed about work. And I think, you know, I'm doing the things I'm supposed to do, right? And that's enough, right? I'm I'm putting in the work. But without fail, those are the times in my life when I felt the most lost and the furthest from God. But when I'm intentional about drawing close to Jesus, about really praying to him when I pray, and paying attention to his presence in my day-to-day life, I find the fulfillment that I'm looking for. You can find that fulfillment too, and I want that for you. But you can't get it by just going through the motions. The only person who can fill your cup is Jesus, so draw close to him. Let's pray. God, Thank you that you give us fulfillment in abundance. Thank you for coming to earth and for beginning a new age. Thank you that in this new age, you you freely pour out your spiritual blessings upon us. Help us to draw close to you in our worship and in our prayers. God, it is so easy to just go through the motions. Help us remember why we do the things that we do. In all this and more, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.